Hello, everyone. I'm Amin Jula, producer and co-host of the Exit the Matrix podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different due to social distancing. Today's podcast is from our Instagram live conversation on Malcolm X's ballot or the bullet speech. Uh, We apologize for the audio fluctuating. This is due to us not being able to record in our studio proper. So y'all about to get the lo-fi version. Also, season three of Exit the Matrix will resume this fall. So stay hydrated, stay well, stay woke, and enjoy the episode. It's nothing personal for me. It's just business. The streets of Baltimore, on the streets of Detroit, during the, the 60s in New York City. Immediately within it, you are going to get those people whose differences are not being articulated, which is right up. So, you expecting any backlash? Oh, I'm already getting it. Oh, yeah. How does that feel? Really, truly amazing live for y'all. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot in activist circles is what is the relevance, the continuing relevance of a lot of social justice activists that came before? How well were they able to read the tea leaves? And so today what we're going to be discussing is one of the most controversial speeches of all time. Malcolm X's The Ballot or The Bullet. And it's truly, truly going to be a great, great time. So we have uh, reached out to a great number. Oh, we have uh, my amazing cohorts. Let's bring in. What's happening? What's good with you in this world? How's you? I hope you're having a, a good, easy Ramadan. Shabbat Habibi, yeah. Uh, easy Ramadan, I, I don't know if that's a... It's rhetorical. I don't know if that's in my... <laughs> no, no, right? Jews love powers, man. Be like, for the day of atonement, how's it going? Well, motherfucker, I can't have no water. I can't fucking eat. Shit kind of... Oh, and I got to think about every shitty thing that I did this year. But other than that... It's fucking great, man. It's fucking great. A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, man, we we maintain, and you know how we do. We find homeostasis in wherever we uh, wherever we land, you know. So, I, you know, I'm I'm so excited about today, bro. Any anything really quickly? I mean, like before we kind of go on what we're going to talk about today and the guests and all those things. Is there anything you wanted to to say first? Just so amazed and honored and humbled by the artists that are going to share their viewpoints. You know, it's so great to hear the other voices out there in leftist, leftist activist circles to speak on these kind of things. So y'all think it's just what I got to believe or what you got to believe. It's other cats out there because you already know, man, everybody getting bullied this season. We're, we're not here to go by what their rules are. We're not here to go by, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And what's up, Scribe? Scribe's in the building, by the way. I'm very excited. Uh, we talking all that good woke stuff. You know what we do here, Exit the Matrix podcast. And we look at everything through a lens of uh, non-oppression, you know, radical non-oppression. That's what we on. And, and we have tremendous panelists. And so, so really, man, let's, let's focus this. Exactly what is our topic today? What are we going to be discussing with our amazing panelists? We'll be discussing in depth from each of the perspectives, identities, and viewpoints, the relevance, if it still has it, you know, uh, of Malcolm X's seminal controversial speech, the ballot, or the bullet. So for those of y'all that have not seen that, that, that speech is widely available. You can find it on an easy Google search because, again, if it's not easily accessible, it's hardly radical. But what we've had is all of our panelists have, have torn it up upside and down, frontwards and backwards, and uh, they're going to talk about the parts that they feel like are the most relevant. Me and you will cap it off at the end, off anything maybe that we feel like they missed. Talk about our own perspectives of it. You know what I'm saying? I think that's really good, man. I think what's important, man, and, and I don't want to take up too much time uh, because we have so many panelists. And like you said, I'm coming back at, at the end to, to discuss a little bit more about this. But, you know, something that I, I just wanted to really do, just touch on is, you know, a lot of these 
uh, uh, activists and, and, and a lot of people out there, you know, trying to make the movement move, you know, they talk a lot about Malcolm X. You know, they talk a lot about, you know, Fred Hampton or, or Shirley Chisholm, all these different people who are out here talking all these radical things, but they still out here saying vote blue no matter what. And we want right. to be, be giving you things directly from Malcolm X's, uh, you know, directly quotes from him, you know, speeches from him specifically. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we have a, a bunch of amazing uh, panelists, like I said. And, you know, Brody, I'm, I'm ready to give it up to you, man, when you want that thing. All right, let's do it then, man. I'm going to bounce you out. It was good, baby. Man, man, lovely. Hey, before we get into the gist of things, man, how's it going with Take Him Down uh, New Orleans, man? Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Take Him Down NOLA is a coalition that I co-founded five years ago this July. And basically, we did the, we did the work to get four white supremacists, Miamis, uh, the fuck up out of here, out of New Orleans. Still 13 standing, so that work is ongoing. We put out one zine. Let me see. I think I got a picture of the zine right now. Y'all can go online and cop one of those. That tells the, at least part of the story. And we got, um, you know, at least one more that we're working on and, you know, ongoing work with that. But the beauty of taking down is it only scathed the surface of what we're really trying to get at, which is systemic oppression in New Orleans. And I can talk more about that as I get into the, you know, to talk about this speech. I'm with it, man. I, I just want to say, like, for all of you know, I'm a Southerner. You a Southerner, man. One of the things I will always hear from my white Southerner friends that were working to get into that wolf, right, is, like, heritage, not hate. And it's like, but Nat Turner is a Southerner from heritage. Like, why y'all never throwing up his shit? You know what I'm saying? Like, for me, and, like, it's like, boom, it's like, is that not part of the heritage of the South, too? Or, you know what right. I'm saying? And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like, you can have a heritage that is hatred. And you got to fucking swap it. Very simple, like, and that's where the cognitive dissonance comes in, is motherfuckers don't want to own up to the fact that your people wasn't shit, and thereby you still ain't shit, because you inherited an ideology that you don't want to disavow. Right? So. Like, you know, I'm not in love with Arnold Schwarzenegger, man, but when you watch this dude go in, bro, he goes in on Nazis, bro. These are a bunch huh. of old, sad men. You know what I'm saying? This is literally the son of a Nazi. Like that, that's yeah, definitely yeah. his heritage. You never see him out there like, ah, oh, you know, they was just misunderstood type dudes. All right, so really? I'm gonna give you the floor, man. Give us a little bit of what you think about, uh, you know what I'm saying? Malcolm X, seminal speech, the parts that you feel like, are, the floor is yours, man. Do you think? Got it, got it. All right, so, um, yeah, man, I love the fact that you premised this. First of all, much props to y'all for the podcast. I appreciate y'all having me on. You know what I'm saying? I don't give a fuck what the numbers are. Y'all my faves out here. We need more leftist podcasts, Yay. more poor podcasts, and more leftist poor podcasts for damn sure. Because I don't know anybody that puts leftist ideology and more poetic flair than when we got the words and the bars. And, you know, not enough poets are up on their politics. Let's just be real. You feel right. me? So um, this is an opportunity for both of those worlds to merge. Um, yeah, so Battle of the Bullet, man. First and foremost, speaking of the bars, Malcolm, we already know. I don't know what your Malcolm connection is. Everybody got a mouth story. Right? Malcolm was like the, 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 the penultimate, you know what I'm saying? Before we learned to look up the gangsters and, and all of this, you know, I was a like young boy watching my pops read Malcolm and, and play Malcolm's speeches. And you know what I'm saying? Um, only time I ever saw him shed a tear was reading about, you know, Malcolm's assassination. So he was always ingrained in my heart and mind as like a demigod. But I love the fact that you premise this whole, uh, you know, talk with, you know, is it even still relevant? Right. Because the beauty of, you know, time and its passage in our own political development is when we can look back on things that once, you know, held the creme de la creme. Right. And like Tupac said, at the, at the while, get off of Malcolm Martin's dick, start saying that there's other like ideologies that we missed out on. There's other ways that things were fused in. OK. And so 
Uh, four main points I want to make about this. I'm not going to get into quote everything. You know, first of all, ballot, bullet, alliteration, bars. He was, you know, one of the original spoken word cats. Our first, my first teacher. And I think I got to reunite with him up in Arkansas a few years ago. Be doing Oye Wole at the last poll. Yeah, when y'all brought him through. I brought him through to my youngins about 11, 12 years ago. He was my first spoken word teacher. All right. And this is going back to like fifth grade, 10 years old, yada, yada, yada. Um, and he said that they were trying to bring the message of Malcolm to the streets. And when I listened to Malcolm in his speech, just let's go on aesthetics. This motherfucker is all about the stylization, right? His bars is crazy. Truth and content can sometimes get stylized um, to death or it can get, you know, a, a half truth can get stylized to like the, the full level. And for the uninformed mass, we might think that is the entirety of the, the, the story, right? So when I listen to Malcolm, what I love most about how he goes in with the battle of the bullet is he immediately critiques um, our division within our community along social lines, along political lines, along religious lines, and recognizes that black nationalism is all about the fusion and the connection of socio-political um, and socioeconomic and spiritual religious, all under one umbrella for the sake of the liberation of all black people. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, whatever, we all black. What bonds us is, you know, the oppression of white supremacy. And we should all be able to find, you know, a connected tissue between that. Where I feel like that whole question that you bring in about the relevancy of it really comes in, um, we won't even get into the, the, the micro critiques of the, the, the the, uh, the the identity politics facets, the heteronormativity, the, the, the patriarchy that's kind of instilled in almost every black speaker from 60 years ago. But most right. importantly, when you talk black nationalism and say we need to own our own stuff, as though that's the entire diagnosis, that's the entire um, analysis that we need that's going to liberate the people. And yet we fail to completely understand and analyze and diagnose what it means to own under mm -hmm. a system that is owned. And you know what I'm getting at. My fellow lefty, take it, okay? If capitalism is the order of the day, it don't matter how many fucking businesses you own. I am a capitalist. Because in a, in a word, you ain't got to go read a whole fucking, you know, five, ten pamphlets on Marx and Lenin. Just know that you already heard uh, Ice Cube tell it to your best. Big bank, take little bank. Ding. So I don't care how many banks we own. Those banks always have to go back and answer to a bigger bank. I am a capitalist. They have about four banks left. Right. You got uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank right. of America, Citigroup, and um, can't remember the last one. Bank of America. I said that one. Yeah, maybe Wells Bank. Fargo, man. I mean, they Wells all Fargo, you got yeah, it. they nodded up. Thank you, my brother. Wells Fargo. Okay, and then all of them answer to the Fed, which answer to the IMF and the World Bank, and all of businesses have to go to this place of finance capital to finance their industry capital. So it does not matter, Nation Islam. It does not matter, Jay Z. It does not matter. Diddy, whoever the fuck you may be, black capitalists, you're not going to be able to salvage us from a system that is rooted in private property and all of the surplus value that they're going to exploit off of the laborers thereby. As long as that's the case, we have a very limited analysis. So I love what Markham gets at. However, where the critique comes in is if we're talking about holistic total liberation for our people, we have to be talking about getting rid of, as our sister Audrey Lord always said, the master's tools. We cannot deconstruct this house using those same tools because we're going to find ourselves bound by the same thing. We're going to be caught right back up in it. And so as much as he does a great job of going in on, um, you know, this, this falsehood of the blue and red of this democracy, this Democratic Party, Republican Party, in this precinct that he sanded in 1964, 
because, you know, Bruh. the Southern strategy was on the horizon. The Southern strategy was about to take, uh, about to take wing. It's prophetic that he's saying it in 1964 because within 10 years, the fucking parties didn't mean shit, they got flipped. Yeah. And yet, this is like, the, the thing that really blows me is that I still have to get on Wikipedia to learn about this shit. You get all the way through motherfucking doctoral level college. Oh, wait, what? Your whole political apparatus of this entire country got flipped because of the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Because of resistance in the streets. And the reason why they'll never tell you these things is not just because they um, don't want you to know about the dynamics of the politics, but they know that it's also rooted in people action. All right. And so um, it's very intentional. Yes, uh, uh, Ned, I see you, Ned. I see you, Kyle. I appreciate y'all coming through. These are yeah. good people, by the way, y'all. Check out their podcast. Um, so I made the point black capitalism can't get it. Yes, he did identify that, you know, these parties are made, but they're not really uh, here to help black people either which way. Let's just be real. America's made a, at least a couple of things. Black oppression, no, black suffering under white oppression and motherfucking green dollars that finance the whole thing. That's it. That should be the country's colors. We don't and need indigenous eradication. And indigenous eradication. And indigenous eradication. And I don't want to make black just black just be a fucking, you know, a Trojan horse for every other, you know, black and brown identification. But every, but every non-white entity that is, a, that is that is suffering and oppressed, white supremacy and green dollars, man. It's capitalism and white supremacy. That's the ideology. It doesn't matter about your, your political system. It's rooted in the base. The rest of it is a superstructure. The base, the rest of it is just decoration around it. I can call it Democrat. I call it Republican. I can fucking mix it up, call it whatever the fuck I want. Ella donkeys, donkey fits, whatever the fuck it is, it's really puppets at the string of a long line of dollars. What do you think Malcolm X would say to somebody that told a person of color or a black person specifically blue no matter what? Malcolm, your thoughts on that would be? Malcolm would have said, you know, black liberation no matter what, at the very least. My only, and I think at the, the, the twilight of Malcolm's career, he would have said people's liberation no matter what, once he got to the point of, you know, I don't care what color you are. He's saying this in, I don't know if that was Oxford or somewhere in Europe, he's saying this, right? But he's understanding that there's a system at stake, and because America is probably one of the most, like, visibly and psychologically racist countries in the world, it gets really easy for us to get caught up in that binary. But if you go to other countries where they actually have even worse economic oppression, um, you'll find that they look directly at the economics in a lot of the Caribbean, in South America, all across Africa, where the liberation freedom fighters were picking up the mantle of, you know, liberation fights that started, you know, uh, decades prior, centuries prior, all right? And so when you go to some of those names, these are the kind of people that he'll end up being in a conversation with any freedom fighter would, from Kwame Nkrumah to Amakar Cabral. Um, if God forbid he had lived long enough, he would have been standing there with Sankara, with Biko, with all of them, right? And they understood that this is a capitalist system that's going to do it to you no matter what, no matter who is the tool for it. Right. I mean, you can get black leaders and rulers in Nigeria doing it to their own people. And right. so once you start to understand that, you realize that this is really a battle between the oppressed and the oppressor, between the haves and the have-nots, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. all right? What's beautiful is even though he just knocked on the door of that, the Panthers did pick that torch up a couple of years later, and it was his heartbeat and his engine that helped plant the seed for Stokely Carmichael to come after and say, black power, right? And the only thing that fell short with that was not completely defining what power meant. And yeah, I mean, it's hard to get your message out when uh, boop, 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 you keep going to take that dirt nap, man. It's it's amazing yeah. the bad luck that uh, leftists have in the world. It's just like it's incredible. You know, like, we just like, stumble on the bullets and shit. Like we just like 
hard objects flying our direction. I don't know the fuck, man. Just, just <laughs> Where did that train come from? I don't fucking know, man. You don't know. How did my neck get tied to the train? I don't know. Just Man, look, when I commit suicide, I always shoot myself in the back of the head. You know, that's why. <laughs> we have laws against it precisely so we can get away with it. You can't stop <laughs> man. Hey, it's been a blast, man. Thank you for giving us that love. I'm going to go ahead and bring in our next panelist. Please continue Absolutely. to watch. Man, hey, bring them all well, down to New Orleans, man. I see you soon, you bro. It. You got it. You got it. All right. All right. Peace. All right, all right. So a couple of things about Keita Marshall. She was born in South Korea. Keita Marshall is a biracial Jewish poet who considers herself from a little bit of everywhere due to the experience of traveling extensively. Oh, look at her, talking about her in the third person. What's good, human being? Yeah, kind of awkward. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? Hey. Hey, boy, hey. So we're honored to have you. You've been on the podcast a couple of times. You're doing the most. Uh, big, huge fan of your poetry, of course. Um Let's uh let's open it up, man. Give me uh give me a little bit of your thoughts about uh tell me a little bit about your identity. I see you have a quite a few. How does that make the how does that make the um conversation more relevant for you as far as uh oh we got pages up in here. What's good? Uh how does oh, that make pages, uh, what up? Right? The balance okay, of the so for sure. So I'll just be honest. Fuck it. I got all the fucking agendas. I'm super pissed off. <laughs> okay. It's like that meme where it's like, yeah, you killed all the nice black people, all the nice queer people. So you're just left with the angry, bitter ones right now. <laughs> we cross. So I'm biracial. I'm black and Korean. I'm queer. I'm also Jewish. Wow, that's a grab bag, yo. Bone <laughs> yeah. gets accepted from you and like a hell of a lot of checklists get hit on Vita, man. <laughs> Give me a word. Get free. How you feeling? Oh, man. Feeling hectic, of course, because of the situation that we're in, um, particularly as conditions worsen. And, man, Michael Questmore said so much great shit about it, and, and particularly how Malcolm X's speech the ballad or the bullet is still relevant today super necessary um especially that we live in a capitalist society so of course you know how can he envision like what are we going to own in this space but i would also speak to the fact that what it showcases is the deeply deeply insidious nature of white supremacy because mm. we assume like only black people are learning from this shit and, and the fact is is white supremacy is learning from his speech too because they've done literally everything possible to ensure that black people make as few strides as possible toward any of what malcolm x outlined in his speech um that we own as little as possible that even if we happen to own things like a home or small businesses we're pretty much punished for it through higher interest rates redlining which still has decimated so many communities of color and that there's been other economically crippling measures that have been put in place to stop us from gaining any sort of positive impact in our communities. And then on top of like all of these successes in terms of white supremacy ensuring our impression is the fact that, you know, white people continue to dismantle communities of color through gentrification, <laughs> which essentially puts communities of color and not just black people, it's primarily black people, but you know, the Asian American communities have discovered that as they get pushed out 
out of places like California. Some of the oldest long-lived Asian communities have been forced out because of higher rents, because of white people who are like, I want to live in Chinatown. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then push us out. Uh, And white people, you know, kind of leaving us at their whims as a voting block because they get to enjoy an economic stability that today, unfortunately, is now virtually impossible for black people to attain, least of all other communities of color. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? So there's always talk about kind of like, you know, all of these sort of, hey, you should just stop buying a latte. Well, that's great. Black people are worried about keeping their fucking homes, (laughs) whether they rent or own. (laughs) Yeah, you got a predatory loan because they knew that you like Starbucks. I'm a capitalist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then we don't account for the hundreds of years that we were enslaved that ensured that we got no economic property. And then on top of that, once Black people were essentially freed, which, what a concept, we had to be freed in order to be, we still weren't acknowledged as citizens. And so, you know, segregationist policies, Jim Crow laws, the Supreme Court essentially saying like, hey, I guess you technically exist, but not really. Um, Like that put us so far behind in terms of economic stability. And then of course, because of redlining, which essentially said that, hey, actually white communities are more prosperous. And so they'll get better taxes, they'll get better treatment on their roads. They're essentially gonna be fast lined into ensuring that these communities stay fit, that these communities stay stable, um, and if Black people move in, then it actually reduces the property values of these homes and these communities. You know, you have the uh, Toni Morrison mod, uh, Sula, where all of the Black people live in a place called the bottom, and it's worth nothing, and it was the land they were tricked into from their master, and then the white people were like, oh, man, it'd be a great place to make a golf course, and then all the Black people get moved out and destroys the society, and then once again, now the land has value, you know? Exactly. And it's determined entirely by white whims because like nobody wanted to live in D.C. D.C. is a great example of it. Nobody wanted to live in D.C. White people wanted to live in the suburbs like that's where their white flight took them. They were like, "Ooh, cities are dirty. We want to have a home and lots of land. We want to play like three garages for our cars. And then suddenly they're like, oh, younger white people are like, "Ah, I don't really care about owning a home. I really kind of want a small place for me and Floofy, my dog. Um, so I want to move back to the city. And so they started moving back into the city. And of course, you know, everybody in power is like, oh, black people, why are you still here? You got to get out now. White people want to come back. And it it wasn't, DC was not considered economically, uh, economically kind of stable or economically prosperous until all those white people moved out. You can see like Chinatown, they kept all of the scaffolding essentially. um, Yeah, of these Chinese artifacts, the signs, and yet, do Chinese people live there? And that's no, they're essentially getting pushed out. <laughs> so what do you think, given Ballard of the Bullet, how do you feel like Malcolm X would react to the mantra of blue no matter what? Blue no matter who? I think, I mean, I can't speak to what Malcolm X would feel. I know how I fucking feel about it. Um, but given his speech, I think he recognized that Black people and communities of color in general were so disenfranchised that our only recourse of action could not be the ballot. Mm-hmm. And 
the reason for that is is because even in his time there were a lot of voting restrictions he kind of grew up and of course the mass incarceration of black people to ensure essentially that they could not maintain the right to vote <laughs> do you feel like that's gotten better now than it was then or do you feel like it's gotten worse from the 60s oh way worse it's gotten so much worse i, I I mean, and of course, people are like, well, black people aren't enslaved, so you should be grateful for these microscopic changes. You are no longer enslaved. But the mass incarceration is, is pretty close to slavery. Yeah, yeah, mass incarceration absolutely is. Um, but what people also don't acknowledge is that since the Supreme Court in 2013 struck down the Voting Rights Act, uh, which absurd, of course, they're telling you that you do not have the right to vote. <laughs> but, you know, the Supreme Court riddled with a whole bunch of fuck shit laws and decisions. Uh, keeps us safe and warm. 25 states enacted voting restrictions. And that included anywhere from the more egregious requiring voter ID laws um, to even something as simple as saying, hey, actually, we're not going to accept your absentee ballot if you're a student. Or if you don't turn it in with this tiny, tiny time frame, we're not accepting your decision, your right to vote. Corruption keeps us safe and warm. Um, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, even a state Supreme Court forced people to vote in the midst of this pandemic saying that if they wanted to vote, they had to go out, risk their health and life in order to do it. And mm. did not offer like absentee ballots, refused to offer online voting or any other safety health measures in order right. to help them accomplish this. Mm. Yeah, no, real. Thank you so much. Um, what you got for us in closing, Ms. Keita Marshall? Man, I always say, I have to say in closing that People of color are pissed off and people need to acknowledge that. We've been told to vote the lesser of two evils for so long, but it's only the lesser of two evils for white people and white agendas. Black people in this country, we can't rely entirely on voting. We also have to rely on our imagination, like Colin right. Kaepernick did with kneeling, like the Baltimore kids did in the Baltimore uprising, like Native American and indigenous populations have done in their protests to keep their native lands. Like, it's going to require a lot, and it's going to require all of us. All right. I see I do have Matt off in the window. Thank you so much for your words. You're really kicking a lot of game. All right, I'm going to bring Matt Cedillo in. Legendary poet out of California has done some of the most extraordinary touring dumb poets, dumb poetry right. in, in the great Cuba. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, bro? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, I'm also technologically challenged. I got a, I got a couple second delay here, so... Um, <laughs> I figured out how to flip it around, though, because before that, I was like, it would be like, you have to see something. So I would, like, put this, like, uh, this flyer of myself that I had, <laughs> and I would move the flyer around while I was talking. So, but I figured out how to flip the camera around, so I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah, uh, tell me about myself. Uh, well, I'm originally from El Sereno, California. For those who might not know the area, that's that's uh, basically the north end of the east side. Um, there's, there's a couple neighborhoods that make up the east side. That would be El Sereno. Uh, Boyle Heights, City Terrace, uh, East LA, obviously, and Lincoln Heights. So I'm from kind of the El Sereno, Lincoln Heights border area. So that that's where I come from. Um, that's where I was born. That's where I lived. Uh, you know, a lot of my life. Um, it's what I tend to write about. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a I'm a poet, kind of a revolutionary poet. Um, been all over the country, been different parts of the world uh, doing revolutionary poetry. So I'm really I'm really excited. I really I really appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on this. 
Man, intersectionality is a thing, man. Anti-oppression coalitions. I feel like this is the heart of what uh, Malcolm was trying to speak to. You know what I'm saying? As a brown leftist activist, I'm always honored to have you in my in my presence, man. Just always good time. So with no further ado, man, I'm going to let you have a thing, man. Tell me a little bit about how you, do you feel like from what you've studied with Malcolm X, uh, if the speech is still relevant, what, if anything, still stick, speaks out to you, especially uh, as a Mexican-American? Um, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so first, first I would say that I just, uh, the, the, the question, I want to talk a little bit just, just for a second about gentrification because that's really a big thing going on uh, in our community as well. And uh, I think that, you know, the neighborhood I'm from right now during this COVID crisis, they've, they've seized homes, right? And they, they keep describing it uh, in the papers called like, uh, they say, um, they, they seized the houses from Caltrans, but um, they're, they're calling it uh, Northeast LA. That's not Northeast LA. That, that's El Sorano. Um, so like, they need to get that right. They need to get that right before they get that wrong. Um, but that that's in El Sorano and that's, you know, where I grew up and, and I'm, you know, I'm very, you know, obviously proud of that. Um, but right in the neighboring city is Boyle Heights. And a lot of the things that went on anti-gentrification struggle in Boyle Heights, also very influential for the country. Uh, there was Defend Boyle Heights, which was a coalition of different groups. And they kind of broke up a little bit. It's kind of kind of not, 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 not seeing its heyday right now. But the, they were actually able to do a lot to really fight gentrification. When they fought gentrification, they did it by throwing bricks through windows and shit. They, I mean, they, they, when they fought, they fought. And, and it's kind of one of these great counterfactuals because we'll never know. But when Amazon was looking to build a, another another um, another one of its corporate centers, they were looking at doing it in uh, LA's Eastern Corridor, which is just kind of just outside, just outside downtown and into into East LA. Now the fact of the matter is, we don't know why they chose Virginia, but I can't help but think that all the news clippers clipping at the time about <laughs> like stay the fuck away, stay the fuck away from Boyle Heights. Uh, help them make that decision, right? So it's one of these counterfactuals we'll never know. But had Amazon built there, the entire east side, El Sereno, Lincoln Heights, Boyle Heights, uh, East LA proper, all of it would have been city terrace, all would have just been wiped away. They would all be gone. So it's really important that. The other thing I want to say about gentrification is that we see that as it's taking place, there's a big movement um, by the developers to whitewash the murals um, of, the, of the cities of, of these of these. Uh, they tell the primarily stories of the people who live there. Of these Mexican, yeah, exactly. And going into this coronavirus um, thing, there was all these articles that were coming out in these mainstream uh, periodicals talking about uh, the Mexican muralist movement might may have been may have been the most important um, uh, artistic movement of the 20th century. Now, this may have been is only a may have been if you're a complete racist, because the reality is it's pretty obvious that the Mexican muralist movement was, you know, a great gift to the world in that, it, it, and it was very simple in its idea: paint your history on the wall. Make it public, right? right? Now, we see that throughout the world. So everyone kind of took note of that. They're like, that's a good idea. I'll do it too. So it's not so much that, oh, I was such a, you know, like they, they copied the sound. No, they didn't. They did, they did it their own way. But the idea of doing it, it origins Mexico. So it's kind of like when they came out with a study about uh, four years ago when they said that hip hop was um, the most articulate uh, music style. That's only surprising if you're a racist. I mean, it's, it's right, got so many right, words. Right, right. Well, what do you mean that they're using words? In a place where yeah, exactly. rhyme a lot. I don't like that shit. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. So obviously that that's an ob that's an obvious truth if you're not racist. So the Mexican muralist movement being the most important thing of the twentieth century in terms of uh, of uh, fine visual arts, that's not a surprise either. So so they're whitewashing these things and they're saying that they're, they're, they need to get rid of these murals. So this is the kind of like amongst like a couple other things, one of like, you know, Mexico's gift to the world, right? Mexico and people of Mexico. This is kind of our gift to the world. And, and, they, and they, they have to erase it because in order to drive us out, they can't have our cultural presence, a reminder that we were there 
there. So th these are the really important things that our community is facing uh, in, in, in the question of gentrification. Um, to get to, to, to what I'm here to talk about today, though, is uh, the ballot of the bullet and its significance. I, it's really, really important to talk about the the, um, the history of how deeply influential Malcolm X and many other um, figures from the Black liberation struggle were to to, to the Chicano movement and, and, and our history and, and, and our understanding of things. Um, there, there has not there. So many people have read these these these, uh, these books and and speeches, and they looked them and they they, they 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 saw similarities. And when they saw those similarities, it inspired them to fight back. It inspired them to do things. Now, of course, we have our own heroes, we have our own lexicon, we have our own ideas of things that have come before us. But the amount of literature was was has been lacking for a very long time. And so we oftentimes would turn to the Black liberation struggle and see similarities parallels and from that be inspired to write on. So there's a constant process of that happening in it. And Malcolm X is probably one of the most key figures uh, in that. So when I, that, that must first be acknowledged and first said before I can really get into what I want to say next. Um, and so when I, so that, 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 that stance. And so Malcolm X was a huge influence in the Chicano movement. Malcolm X, huge influence on me. Um, the next part I want to say about this though, is that when I read this speech, and I'm not really interested in critiquing it. I'm, I'm interested in like what I truly agree with. And that is when he talks about the, the, the fact of the matter, the democratic party essentially um, are, 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 are more deceptive um, than the Republican party because they, they serve a different function. And I think that's true today. And I think it was true then and it's true today. Now, what I'm interested in is this concept of what's going on right now where we have within the Democratic Party a supposedly progressive wing versus an establishment wing. Uh, so Bernie Sanders, the squad, et cetera, they, they represent what we consider more of a progressive wing. Now, that to me is actually a loyal opposition, you know, because they are never going to break from the party. So there's right. a loyal opposition. And the Democratic Party itself serves as a loyal uh, opposition to the Republicans, right? Because the Democratic Party is never going to, like, say, oh, let's wage war or something like that. So the, the Democratic Party is a loyal opposition to the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party within the Democratic Party has a loyal opposition. Right. So San Bernie Sanders operates as a loyal opposition within the Democratic Party. And when he goes out and he endorses Hillary Clinton, when he endorses Joe Biden, I did. What you can that. then do is put all the crimes of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden onto Bernie Sanders, who himself has many, many people. He's yes. saying I've got for these people. Right. And he himself has many, many crimes. I mean, he, this this is a man who who funded like uh, wars on, wars on like eleven different countries. Eleven, uh, you know, he's done a lot of bad things. I mean, as a as a member of the U.S. Senate, which is a no, he's super anti-war except for that F thirty five program. It's almost like they have jobs in his state or something, man. I don't know. It's like, yeah. Hey. I hear Bernie's working with the feds. So we, <laughs> he works with this criminal enterprise known as the U.S. Senate, and, 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 that, and that cannot be forgotten, and that cannot be whatever. And, and for, for me personally, um, you know, this figure of Bernie Sanders, it's very, it's very offensive to me to hear, like, this guy who's this great, supposed like, great humanitarian, and he's going to liberate all of us, um, because one of his greatest, like, the thing he has his most hands most dirty in was, um, I, mean, I mean, obviously war is horrible, but the thing that, 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 like, when I think about him, I think about this this one thing. He's talking about the, the improving life of working class. He's talking about doing all these things, and he talks about it in a way where it, it's still violent, it's still imperialist, uh, and it's kind of like war with, den a war with a dental plan, right? But yeah, at the same time... Yeah. At the same time as all that, Bernie Sanders actually was 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 instrumental, was the key figure, not just something he went along with that somebody else wrote the bill, a key figure in in this it's kind of toxic dump where, where, where Vermont, the state of Vermont was uh, was uh, dumping a lot of this toxic waste into a border town in Texas, which is primarily Mexican neighborhood. So he's he's, he's dumping he's 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 sending off uh, the toxic sludge 
to get it out of the to, to to not create a situation where his constituents, his white constituents in Vermont, are dying, and he's sending it down uh, to to a bunch of Mexicans because you know that's cool. I mean, it's cool to poison Mexicans. That's cool. That's fine, you know. And so, like, uh, you know, I grew up in El Sereno, but like, also, like, I spent time with my father as well. And we I, we live in Maywood. That's Southeast LA. If you look, you can look up what's going on in Southeast LA. There's a whole thing with the Exide, with the Exide, uh, with the Exide battery plant, and it's one of the most, it's one of the worst. Uh, Twenty, thirty years later, there's all these lawsuits because they would poison the soil, and people been people been getting sick for years. It's like it's a cancer alley. It's like it's one of the worst cancer alleys in the United States of America. Where are we gonna dump our sludge next? You look at Bell. Cudahy, Maywood, uh, Bell Gardens. You know, I mean, I, I I grew up in Maywood. You know, I mean, like this, you know, my, my parents had joint custody, so I lived in Maywood until uh, I was like 15 years old. So like, this is like uh, my lungs are affected by this. I have I've I have chronic bronchitis, and that comes from having lived in Maywood for the first 15 years of my life. So so um, this is uh this is uh, this speech is very very powerful and impactful, and I think it's still relevant today. If you looked at what what, what Malcolm X was talking about. With uh, with the Democratic Party versus Republican Party, that you know you're looking at a wolf versus a fox. Those dynamics are still in play today. Um, I, I would say that it gets more complicated now because we have this we have this opposition opposition within the party to the rest of the party and these false kind of binaries of like this idea that there's a progressive wing and establishment wing. But you had that back then too, and it would lead up to the uh, the, the run of. Um, George McGovern, um, right. who the the party actually collapsed upon as well. So Bernie Sanders never actually won the nomination, but had he done that, they would have McGovern him as well. Oh right, they got that Jeremy Corbyn's treatment, right? And that, like when you're watching yeah. politics internationally, you're aware of these kind of things. This is not the kind of stuff you're gonna see on MSNBC or CNN or Fox News. But when you're a real activist, you have to be looking at these trends on a global pattern. I think you're absolutely right. I, well, absolutely. And the, la the, the last thing I would say, I, I, as I tend to agree with this concept that he had of um, of going to like the UN, of going to, taking outside of the context of, of the United States, or taking outside the context of seeing ourselves as hyphenated Americans. Um, mm. That's not has not worked out for us. We find ourselves at the bottom of all the pay scales. We find ourselves at the top of all the incarceration rates. And that is going to continue. We cannot change that. It's not going to change. It has not changed for my community. Um, you know, ever since the Mexican-American War, we have been at the bottom of the wage scale. We have been murdered in the streets. We have, it, it won't change. It, it does not change. There is no, there is no ascension for us, right? It has definitely been true of the black community. That does not change. Our position does not change in this country. Um, so the country itself, uh, the, 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 the geographic landmass we live in, the entire political structure has to be changed. What, if anything, do you think are the roles of electoral politics? And as a person that is not affiliated with the Republicans or the Democrats, what are strategies that you would offer? And we'll, we'll let that be our last thing as we transition out. I honestly think that what we need to do is we need to move away from, from pouring our energy into uh, organizations that are, are, are beholden to um, murderers like the, the, like the military industrial complex and bankers, right? We just need to get out of there, right? So, so we need to get out of that. We need to get out of the money, money changers and the, and the murderers, right? Those are the people that control both the political parties. So we need to get, we need to get, we need to get the hell away from there. We need to build our own third political parties. I don't believe in the political third parties that exist currently. We need something new with a bunch of new energy that can grow rapidly and do something. If these parties that are, that are in current existence, could have done something, they would have done something. Um, so that something new has to come about. My personal belief is if we had parties that had like a couple like 10 point demands and nobody veered from them, you know what I mean? I think that would be actually really powerful because Remember, then it wouldn't Black matter. Panther Party for Self-Defense had a 10 point plan. You know, this is our yeah. platform. No matter what face you see, this is what they rocking for. You know, the politics is so need... more important than the person. Things move, things move and things change and things go in different directions. So we need a 2020 platform.
That's all I would say. Right. Thank you so much, Matt, uh, for coming in, man. Always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you in D.C. again. Get you on the podcast proper. Hey, don't you got a book out, though? Yeah, I got this book. It's called Mowing Leaves of Grass. Um, And the reason it's called Mowing Leaves of Grass is because Walt Whitman in the 1840s said, what is miserable, inefficient Mexico with the grand mission of people in the new world with noble race? So he was a big proponent of Manifest Destiny and the Mexican-American War. When you do shit like that, hundreds of years later, someone like me is born. They get in a position to write a book. They publish it. And my my, my, my general feeling for people get offended by me attacking Walt Whitman is say, yeah, you know, he was a talented guy. But you know what? He was a racist. I'm talented too. Fuck him. Super necessary. Yes. Yes. Hey, I love you, homie. Keep fighting the good fight man intersectionality for everything man love to the brown nation keep doing it on your leftist tip bro i will see you when i see you all right we're about to bring in uh pressman remarkable poet let's see pressman is an award-winning writer performer and advocates with interest uh an advocate with interest in sex worker rights and post-colonial philosophy they are a nationally touring spoken word poet who's represented D.C. and Virginia in a myriad of competitions. Man, look, y'all about to get your faces rocked off, and that's what we do. Do what's good, Pressman? Hello. Can you hear me all right? Man, you're wonderful on this end. Sick. <laughs> uh, hey, how are we doing? What? Man. <laughs> <laughs> stir crazy not being able to go outside but we still bringing love and word to the people man what's good with you uh not much just trying to stay uh as safe as possible as a working person in COVID-19 um I'm on I'm on that essential worker grind right now it's good <laughs> it's amazing how essential we became all of a sudden the wages were never essential type wages but it's amazing now because we are a, a, a essential type workers, man. So uh, let's jump right into it, man. Tell me uh, a little bit about your identities and how they connect you to the work. And then just give me your thoughts on the work. Oh, yeah. So um, my mom's side of the family is uh, Indonesian and Muslim, uh, predominantly from the island of Java. Uh, my dad's side of the family is white and Jewish by way of Poland. Uh, so really, if the Axis powers had their way during World War II. Neither part of my family would be existent right now. Wow. <laughs> my birthday is to Hitler. It's a great time. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, I came over to the States in 2002, uh, and I mentioned that specifically in the bio because it was a very weird time to be coming to the States as, like, a brown person from a Muslim country, mm. uh, and, uh, a largely Muslim family as well. Uh, and seeing a lot of the rhetoric that was going down, um, like post 9-11 America. And like, I, I know I, I hear a lot of people talking about, um, oh, oh <laughs> sorry. Um, hey man, we all, we all sequestered together. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, and I, I hear a lot of people talking about like what America was like before 9-11 and, oh, can you imagine what it was like before the security crisis? And I was like, no, I, I can't because that was literally the only America I was introduced to. <laughs> was not that great, man. Don't let them lie to you. <laughs> Little black boy saying. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, but it, it, it's been... It's been hysterical being in the States, I'm not going to lie, because I remember when we came over to the States, my dad was like, it's going to be so much safer for you there. Uh, We're not going to have to worry about the constant bombings that we did back home in Indonesia. Uh, And we come here and literally within the first month of us being here, the the DC sniper started going on a spree and started coming from the area. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Never a dull moment, apparently. 
honestly, you just got to choose which medium of violence you want to be eliminated by. And that depends on, <laughs> that's really what you and should And that is freedom. No. Yeah, that's freedom. <laughs> Choosing which weapon you want to die by. That's real freedom right there. Corruption um, keeps us safe. Yeah, and so, uh, as far as I've known, America's always been like a very violent place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's been so long since I've read this speech. And having this like panel and roundtable discussion bring me back to this, it, it's, mind-blowing how prophetic this is of everything that's going on right now. Um, first and foremost, I, I want to preface this by saying that like everything that we're seeing in the 2020 election cycle is so much of an echo of what was happening in 2016, right? Like it, it, it hurts because we've been here before. Uh, and somehow, somehow 2016 had less sexual assault allegations. Uh, it was it was just wild. And, and first and foremost, I really want to talk about like vote shaming in 2016 and 2020, right? Like mm-hmm. the vote shamers are out in full force in a way that we haven't seen since, you know, literally 2016. Um, and I, I really want to like mention here that even in 2016 with vote shamers out in full force, Clinton like, won by three million votes, right? Like Clinton should have sweeped that sweep that election if like the system was actually meant to i don't know reflect the actual will of the people (laughs) but when and what it comes down to is like the flawed system that is the electoral college right the flawed system that is like what the framers left us with because they literally did not trust the american people to make good decisions for themselves um and both times that the electoral college has gone again against the popular vote it's been like unsurprisingly in the way of republicans and in the way of conservatives and in the way of like in 2016 outright fascist like unapologetic fascist not even like the veiled kind of shit that we saw in like right the, yeah open fascism keeps us safe no, it's, it's, it's insane um and i think one of the things that's like most um frustrating about that is how increasingly obvious it is that there is no such thing as like a truly salient vote if you're a person of color right there is no such right. thing if you're a truly sal- for a, a truly salient vote if you're not living in a primarily white, primarily rural state, because yes, while they might have less electoral votes as a state, your vote literally counts for a higher percentage of that delegate count, right? Like your vote literally matters more if you live in a majority white, majority rural, majority conservative state. And that didn't really happen by accident. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that like one of the more one of the even more insidious things about uh, the vote shaming that comes about in 2016 and 2020 is that like a lot of people who are very big on vote shaming are white liberals. Right. And these are people who find it easier to shift the blame to people that didn't perform liberalism to their standard. Right. Didn't perform what they considered to be the wokest thing you can do to their standard. Uh, And and it's, it's insane because like, these are the same people who talk about like, people on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party being divisive and, like, hateful, when really, like, they are the ones who are finding it easier to shit on more disenfranchised and more marginalized people on their side of the their side of the aisle, uh, instead of holding Trump supporters and actual conservatives accountable for what they are doing and what they are falling in line for. I think that was one of the, the preeminent thoughts in my mind as I was thinking about how I wanted to put this panel together, because I think the vote shaming thing you say is absolutely dead on. That's one of the first things that you'll hear. It's a go-to statement. It's like, think about the people that are less privileged than you. It's like, uh, you're, you're genderqueer, you're Muslim, you are an immigrant American. Like, how many people have less intersections of privilege than you? You know what I'm saying? I think about Keita Marshall, uh, uh, biracial, Asian, 
black queer woman, right? These are, this is not a person with a, myself, Michael Questmore, black men that are incarcerated at a rate that is startling. You know, there are more black men in prison in America than there are uh, populations of some small countries, right? And so like, mm -hmm. when the vote chambers are like, you just don't understand privilege, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Stupid. Quite literally, quite literally. And like there, there are other parts of the speech that like really speak to that, right? I mean, um, I think specifically of the quote, Dixiecrats are there illegally, unconstitutionally, there being, you know, Congress. Um, half of their state doesn't even or can't even vote. And that's not irrelevant today, especially with like gerrymandering laws and the recent SCOTUS decision that we had. Like votes are becoming increasingly and increasingly less salient with every generation. And it's not like the Voting Rights Act of 1964 took care of all of this, right? I mean, mm. like, you, you see, like, everyday new voter restrictions, like, being proposed or being passed, especially in conservative states. And, like, that creates this, uh, that's what really creates, like, the Bible Belt and, like, this conservative voting block throughout the South. Because if you actually talk to real people in the South, a lot of them actually do have politics that are rooted in caring, that are rooted in, like, striving for equality you just don't get to see those votes being reflected in the will of the people because of the fact that gerrymander like these people are gerrymandering every single leftist voice out of being able to actually voice their opinion and, and this is not a phenomenon for just the right or uh, the quota i shouldn't say the right or the left this is not just a phenomenon for the democrats or the republicans because you know we've talked about this often you can right now pay your taxes through your smartphone you can sign for a mortgage through your smartphone. There is biometric identification where this phone absolutely knows who you are. Phones that only come on with your fingerprint. But I can't vote through my phone. You're telling me I can't authenticate that? That's because it's too accessible. And if everybody could vote, both parties would be fundamentally threatened by such a shift. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. It's just so wild, especially seeing like... Um, I don't know. I will say that Democrats are behind a lot of like actual like get out the vote campaigns, but more so specifically, um, they find it easier to sell their side of the story to most voters and especially most centrist voters and like middle of the line voters. And that's what they're trying to get their vote out to. But like especially conservatives and especially like older Democrats were very big on gerrymandering like votes that were anything against them out of the picture. Um, Absolutely. I think one of the other really salient points in this speech that we saw from Malcolm X is, uh, what is it? Uh, he was talking about the current administration of 1964, right? And he said, in this present administration, they have in the House of Representatives 257 Democrats and only 177 Republicans. They control two-thirds of the House vote. Why can't they pass something that will help you and me? In this Senate, there are 67 uh, senators who are part of the Democratic Party, only 33 of them are Republicans. Why Democrats have got the government sewed up, and you're the one who sewed it up for them, You and what have they given you for it? Like, I, I think it's such an incredible and, like, incredibly prophetic point about the Democratic Party today. Like, what is the Democratic Party actually doing for the most vulnerable among us? They haven't done, I mean, like, their presumed nominee is one of the <laughs> like most vocal nominees who's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything about ICE if I come to power. I'm not going to do anything about the detention centers and the prison camps that we have where people are dying by God knows how many at this point. We don't know how bad COVID is going to be in those in those camps. And like that, right. this is this is something that people constantly forget. Right. Like Anne Frank did not die in a gas chamber. 
And right. Frank died of a preventable infectious disease. She died of typhoid in a right. concentration camp. Right. I think about, you know, when people will say things like, well, think about the Supreme Court, right? And you have a candidate that has floated the idea of picking a Republican as a running mate. Like, more than once, he said this. And it's like, so, like, based on what actionable material can you guarantee there would even be a leftist pick for, like, and what does a leftist mean, right, in the context of mm-hmm. Joe Biden thinks this is a per- person's a leftist? It's rhetorical. Yeah, no, I mean, like, Joe Biden, Joe Biden is very much what a lot of us call a dino, which is like a Democrat in name only. And, and like, that, I, I wouldn't even say that because he is, like, incredibly Democratic in the sense that he's, like, a regular established Demo- establishment Democrat. He's a guy who's, like, been playing this game for decades and decades and decades and is set in his ways. I mean, like, the fact that he's floated the idea of having a Republican VP pick shows that he's not actually here for the most marginalized in the party. He's not actually here for the most marginalized in our country. That's never been the game plan for him. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think what I'm finding especially hard to swallow this election cycle, and especially with vote shamers this election cycle, um, is how quickly white liberals use this same kind of rhetoric that conservatives had against like women who were um, like, vouching for Dr. Blasey Ford and saying like, oh, like you guys are just doing this because it's politically convenient for you. Why should we believe her? She came out all these years later. And and they're using these same like anti-woman, anti-survivor talking points that like conservatives have used against survivors for decades and not even thinking about the cognitive dissonance of that, not even thinking about what that means to the like saliency and the legacy of their work. But talking points against Tara Reid is just mind blowing. I mean, like I think I saw like people talking about how she's a Russian agent, which is preposterous. <laughs> oh, you know, they're going to say that about all of us, all of us getting them big chat. But, you know, that's a very old part of counter uh, counter intel oh, yeah. pro is to discredit leftists or attacks to the Democrats by saying mm-hmm. we're foreign operatives. I mean, I, you know, again, I am not getting no checks. I'm not saying I wouldn't take a check, but no check <laughs> has ever been offered to me. No check yeah. has ever. What about you? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, like, the white side of my family was run out of Russia because of the fact that they were Jewish. So I don't think I'm getting any checks from Putin anytime soon. <laughs> no, no checks from Putin. All right. Damn. All right. <laughs> but unfortunate. Um, no, but like, it, it's, it's shocking seeing like the, the total cognitive dissonance of that. Uh, and like people not even thinking about how this affects like their integrity as like someone who purports to be a supporter of survivors and of women, but only when it's politically convenient for them. Like it, it's about, it's about doing things that aren't politically convenient for you. And I think that's the point of having any kind of like solid political integrity to what you were doing, right? Um, I think again, it's that fox and that wolf metaphor that, that Malcolm is using. Like the Democrats are that fox, they're sly. They understand the language of identity politics. They understand the language of social justice and they weaponize it against their enemies, but we're supposed to ignore it for them. What was what was uh, the Senator Michael, uh, what was uh, the comedian who was uh, Al Franken, you know? Like everyone's like, oh, does he really have to retire? And it's like, wait, what? Is this a conversation right now? Yeah, like there was literal photographic evidence of him like like assaulting a woman while she was asleep. And they're like, are you sure that he has to go? Like, we don't want him to go. And I was like, are you kidding? He's a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, No, it's It's fascinating. It's fascinating. (laughs) 
All right, so give me what you got. Let's finish it up, and then uh, just tell me, tell me some projects that you're working on right now. Tell me the the activism that means the most to you. Where you're at in the world, where people can find you, and what you're about. <clears throat> um, yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, currently located around the DMV area. I'm uh, quarantining with my boyfriend and his family. They're being very generous and like letting me stay with them. Um, and it's been nice being in a family environment during all of this. Uh, right now, I haven't been working on a lot of artistic projects. I've been trying to just not think about the fact that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Every day you survive means you won. So is that a fact? I'll try to think about that. <laughs> no, um, but it, it, it's, it's been good. Uh, in terms of the stuff that I'm working on and like the work that I'm really passionate about right now, I'm passionate about getting as much as I can financially so I can start donating to all of these fantastic mutual aid funds that have been going up. Uh, and I think that like if about caring about each other, if we're really about like taking care of each other, we need to be paying attention to these mutual aid funds and contributing where we can. It's not, and it's not like we have to like contribute to them and like put the whole bill, right? It's all about like sparing $5 when and where we can to the communities who are, mo who are like the most marginalized, right? Um, there's like a radical Muslim uh, mutual aid fund going around for uh, leftist Muslims who wanna make sure that we can support each other, especially queer Muslims during Ramadan. This can be a very lonely time for Muslims who don't have mm -hmm. ancestral like or big uh, connections to their family for whatever reason. Um, making sure that we are looking out for uh, like mutual aid funds for black trans women, for sex workers, uh, for anyone who is like at a significant intersection of, society, of marginalization in this society and in this society and isn't being taken care of by these stimulus checks because those aren't reaching a lot of people. We like if you were lucky enough to get a stimulus check and you don't need all of it, it's a great idea to like pay some of that forward to an undocumented mutual aid fund um, or to do something to take care of these communities around us. We can't be there physically for each other right now, but that doesn't mean that we can't find other ways to be there in a, like, in, like, a, what's the word, um, tangible way. There's other ways to be tangible to the people around you aside from being there for them physically. Mm. Now, bars, man, bars, absolutely. Thank you so much for being our guest. You are the best. Cannot wait to see you again once the government takes us off of punishment. Uh, I'm gonna bring in the Matrix Killer to uh, speak on some speak on some tangs. Love, 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 Pressman. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. See you soon. Likewise. We have the Matrix Killer. What's good, sir? What's good? Habibi. Yo. Yo. Uh, before uh, before we get into anything, before I, I wrap up anything or, or we go to some questions. I just need to throw, ask our uh, our community that's in the chat right now to put some hearts, put some comments in 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 the IG live uh, for all of the uh, panelists that we had today: uh, Michael Questmore, Matt Cedillo, Pressman, Keita Marshall. I mean, everybody in the building. I mean, it's like man, when lions get to a carcass, man, there's not much meat left. I don't even know what we have left to uh, to talk about. Uh, and also, also put some hearts in the comment for your host, Emoji the Moment. Yeah. Gang, what's up with y'all? Right now, uh, I see you with the choker. The locks is looking luxurious, my friend. Uh, super nice I, I, I appreciate you tremendously. Uh, Anita is in the building. Jonathan is in the building. Soma Talia is in the building. I mean, just a, 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 a what do they call it? A um, embarrassment of riches, I think that we're. Yes. Gonna now, my friend, uh, I, I, I want to make sure that you are following our panelists. Uh, please feel free to go back in the chat 
see what their ads are. Please put them in the chat if, if they're still available. I mean, these are people that we look up to tremendously when we try to learn and we try to teach. You know, these are the people that, that, that we like to, uh, to buddy up with. So I, I'm just I'm taken aback by the, uh, the amount of, of swag and drip and, and, and leftist philosophy that we have been, uh, we have been privy to and, and have accepted uh, so far. And, um, you know, shout out to y'all for sure. Uh, you know, yo, yo, and, and for real, man, for real, for all of you cats out there that think, like, only, you know what I'm saying, intellectual white kids, red marks, please disavow yourself for that bullshit. Please, please disavow yourself for that bullshit and thinking that, like, little poor people of color and black people and Muslims, we don't know nothing about that communism. Please disavow yourself for that bullshit, okay? Because we on that, you yeah, know? From, uh, you know, maybe uh, white supremacy, uh uh, American exceptionalism. Uh, you <laughs> Man, you might be suffering from it a little bit. When you're looking at cultures that have been practicing communal living literally for thousands of years, Native Indigenous people, there was no homelessness in the Native Indigenous America. That just did not happen. You know what I'm saying? There were communities of people looking out for each other. We didn't need, and again, as love to Marx, as love to Engels, but please don't think, them the motherfuckers that put us up on this shit. They articulated it in a way that made it palatable for, and not even a lot of Western minds to really conceptualize this. When I think about the Ballad of the Bullet, man, I definitely still have a couple of thoughts. I think about, for one, the fact that the Democrats and the Republicans, to a lesser degree, are a party that by and large was formed by Andrew Jackson. Okay? Talk about this it. is something... This is something that we cannot get away from when we're talking about how Malcolm X felt about the ballot or the bullet. When he's calling them Dixiecrats, he's calling them Dixiecrats because they're literally a party that came from a slave-owning white man that felt like black people not only did not have the right to vote, but could be sexual chattel that could be physical labor that could be bought and sold at any age that had no problem ripping up families and now wants to be in a place of like, well, look at black families. Why can't they stay together? 300 years of not having the autonomy in a family structure means it's a whole lot of culture you got to create on the fly, right? And when we're talking about modern Democrats, they haven't even disavowed themselves of these people, right? When you, like we we're talking about, we we're talking about earlier, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, whatever you think about his politics, every time Nazi shit come up, he'd be on, fuck these Nazis. I, y'all play this Nazi shit. I was the son of a Nazi and they're old, sad men. You don't get these Southerners like, oh, you know, I'm really ashamed of my, my Confederate heritage. Those are people that felt like it was okay to, uh, to see human beings as animals. So for the party to be from that, modern people, they're not even distancing themselves from those kind of people. I mean, Trump, who was a Democrat for a very long time, Andrew Jackson is notably his favorite president. And he's spoken on that. Now ask yourself, what kind of obligation do you feel like uh, Ashkenazi Jews would have to a National Socialist Party in Germany, even 150 years later? What kind of obligations would they ever have to vote for such a party that was instrumental to their destruction as a people, and yet black people are obligated to vote for parties like the, the Democrats, right? I think what we have to look at is what he's talking about is coalition building, right? Because when we're looking at the demographic numbers, I'll pull down some numbers real quick, so I'm going to hit that for y'all. When they tell you vote or die, right, here's some numbers to be aware of. 
2016, 55.7% of the American population voted. That represents a number 182,250,400 people. As of 2017, white women alone made up 63.4% of the American population, sitting at a number of 206,130,600 people. Now, again, back to 2016, 53% of white women voted for, for Air Cheeto. You know what I'm saying? Uh, his, his, royal, his royal fascist himself. So you're looking at a number of 60,851,814. Because we hear that number 53 a lot, and we don't look at how big a number of people that is. Yeah, we look now, at... We look, go for it. Percentages are, are, are right on with each other. When you're looking at the, the American voting block is, is, is so huge when it comes to white people, you know what I'm saying? Or how about this? People who are not only white, but people also who subscribe to whiteness. That subscribe to whiteness. Right, it's so big. I mean, what really are is what really do people of color, what do minorities, you know what I'm saying, in this country, people non-Christians, you know what I'm saying, non-cishead people, like what really is the power that, that we have, you know what I'm saying, in the voting box? Right. It's so much smaller. Right, right. So like all of the black people in America, we represent 12.7% of the American population for a number of 41,554,400. Now, that's literally less people, less people than just the white women alone that voted for Trump. Like if every single black person voted for a Democrat, just the white women alone that voted for Trump, black people couldn't have circumvented that. So when you're hearing arguments like against black people, like, well, you didn't vote and now it's your fault. You know what I'm saying? We're like, we don't have those numbers from the jump. But I think what Malcolm was talking about was understanding the power of coalition. Because although black people in and of ourselves only represent so many votes, there is a queer vote. There is an immigrant vote. There is a non-Christian vote. Right. And all of us have intersecting identities that are being oppressed by the mainstream society. And the Democrats <clears throat> are giving lip service to all of these people, because at the end of the day, all the Democrats really care about is what centrist white voters. Yeah. And, and, and they use their they're constantly their platform is we're not Republicans, you know. Oh, uh, my policy is not Donald Trump. You know, I mean, you cannot pull the wool over our eyes and expect us to constantly be believing these things. Um, a couple things, man, I, I wanted to bring up, if I may, if I may. Please do. Uh, you know, uh, in the speech, you know, Malcolm was talking about, you know, you're, bad, you're in bad shape when your enemy is your employer. And I'm looking at the major employers in the United States. I'm looking at people like Jeff Bezos, the Walton family, Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer. Uh, uh, Larry Ellison, you know, these people are enemies to you, you know, and when you have to go to work for them every single day, there's really not much that you can do in terms of changing. We hear a lot of people say things like, oh, let's let's change it in, in, internally. Let's get in, infiltrate, and then we can make change. When we look at historical evidence, this is literally never happened. It can't happen. You can't change the system. The system changes you. Absolutely. Exactly. But weren't you talking about, we were talking about democracy in one of our podcasts, Exit the Matrix podcast, everywhere you find podcasts. But we were talking about, uh, one, one of them talking about democracy. And, you know, we always talk about democracy. A democracy's never existed in the history of, of the world. In the history of the world. It's never been a democracy. You know, and and I, what we have is, is much closer to an oligarchy. Right, right, right. Plutocracy. I mean, there's other things that we can look at, you know what I mean? Plutocracy. Yeah, they just keep rolling all of these things, but none of them are democracies. 
Right. I mean, that that needs to just be completely removed from our. Disavow uh, yourself for that shit. Yeah. Stop saying that shit. You well, look you, foolish as a as an activist if you talk about this is a democracy. You look foolish. Right. Democracy is the same thing of freedom and justice. They're just they're just buzzwords that they throw out. Freedom fries. You know what I mean? Like these are things that they do just particularly. Uh, to co-opt, you know, something in particular. So that was one of the things. Another thing that you were talking about, and we've been talking about in terms of Democrats, like Southern Democrats or people from the South, racism being a part of, you know, Southern heritage and Southern culture, you know, and, and something that Malcolm was talking about on um, on ballot or the, or the bullet, the speech, you know, if you are South of Canada, you know what I'm saying? You're in American South. I mean, that's really what it is. And Facts. If Facts. you're a black person living in Canada, if you're a black person living in Canada, I mean, how about north of Mexico? <laughs> right. That's the American right. South, uh, you know, when, when, when you're talking about it. And uh, I thought that was interesting, man. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, he was, you know, Malcolm was talking a lot about, you know, revolution and a bloodless revolution and, and how that happens. You know, I think something that we have to start pushing for our uh, leaders, you know what I'm saying, is reparations. I mean, reparations is an incredibly important part of moving forward as a country, especially. You know, Absolutely. Right. And, and, and I, I have that in, in part of my notes, right, because I'm saying. I think the great misconception has happened for so long. We've said it and we've repeated it and people have started to believe it. Even black people are starting to believe it, but especially white Democrats believe it. They believe that the black political agenda is the same as the white democratic agenda. And it's absolutely not. Right. And all of us demographics have our own potential politics. I'll say like as a black person in America, some of my key political priorities Police, lethal force limitation, because the force is being used by police forces in states that don't even have the death penalty. Like, they don't have the death penalty in this state. So there's nothing you can do to be worthy of being killed, and yet you still have all of these states where black people are being killed. No matter how black you are, uh, unless you have given up on, on black politics altogether, this is something that means a lot to you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, reparations, as you stated, are critical to black politics. Every black person believes that reparations should be a thing, and not necessarily just for black people. Right. Native Americans, uh, Mexican Americans, Chinese Americans, all of the people that were disenfranchised in our opportunities as we built this country alongside people that were being rewarded for their efforts and in a land where wealth can inherit. So reparations. Uh, the, the reduction of mass incarceration. These are huge things because it's slavery by any other new name. We can't do slavery now. So we'll just say you got convicted for smoking a plant that grows natural in, in nature and you'll do hard labor where you are subjected to the worst kind of trauma and chaos and possibly uh, all kinds of physical violence, right? Up to and including sexual violence can for I smoking a, a plant. Can I ask you a question? Fire away. Uh, which Democratic nominee is uh, for the uh, abolishment of prisons? Uh, not one. Uh, not so one. I mean, even Bernie Panders, Uncle Ray's, uh, Racist Grandpa, voted for the crime bill. Like, he may not have wrote it, but he voted for it, which means a lot. Like, if he wants to ride on his wisdom and how smart he was to see everything, oh, I didn't vote for the Iraq war. Yeah, but you voted for the crime bill. So... You know, you can't do, like, look at how wise I am all the time. Oh, but I misunderstood this one thing. And, and I would say one of the last really big key pointers to black politics is, is legalization, decriminalization of substance abuse. 
right? These are the things that are inherent in black politics. And that's just scraping off the top of the, what are, what are some of the inherent politics for you as a Palestinian, as a Muslim that may or may not be uh, in, in association with democratic principles? Well, I mean, I don't think there's a single Democrat that exists in terms of in the Senate, you know what I mean, that is in, in for Palestinian liberation. And let's, and let's not just say Palestine. I mean, let's, let's talk about a significant amount of countries right now that are being uh, run by American puppet you know, dictators and, 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 and things like this. I mean, as a, I'm not only, I mean, as a Palestinian, I have to ha continue to have solidarity with, with countries like uh, Venezuela or uh, Bolivia or, I mean, and there's so many uh, uh, countries, you know what I'm saying? And, and Bernie Sanders is not the type of person that is pro-leftist governments in South America. I mean, he's for uh, African nations being able to have autonomy over their resource. He's not for that, you know what I mean? And, and no Democrat really is. And unfortunately, as we continue to, to try to, you know, go through this uh, voting shaming, which is going to happen right. In, you know what I mean? One of the biggest reasons I left Facebook in period because I was, I don't know how you do it on, <laughs> on Facebook. Man, I eat trolls with a little bit of American cheese, bro, on a brioche bun. Fuck trolls. Right. No, big facts, big facts, you know, but, but I mean, I mean, so many things. I mean, just, just, just looking at, you know, the, the, the Muslim man, what an absurd concept in, in regard, you know, in, in any way, if you understand geopolitics, like, oh, Muslim ban, except if you're from Saudi Arabia or you're from UAE, you're from a country that, uh, is for, you know what I mean, the, the capitalist ideas of controlling that region. They want the oil money. They want to be able to, and, you know, it used to be all the Arab countries were, were pro-Palestine. You know, they were, they were, it would be, I mean, it would be a heretic note to, to, to go out there and, and be pro-Israel, but we look at Saudi Arabia, we look at UAE now, I mean, they're, they're all in bed together, you know? So I, I just don't understand how, you know, even as a Muslim, you know, how can I vote for a Bernie Sanders, you know what I'm saying? Knowing that, you know, his agenda is still a part of the major, you know, neoliberal agenda that exists in the Middle East, which is, you know, Palestine needs to be removed. I mean, essentially from the area. Uh, and, 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 you know what I'm saying? I mean, these the two-state solutions, all these different things, you know what I mean? Like, I need someone who's going to come out and say, look, this is a one-state solution. What we're going to be doing is, you know, everybody that lives within this country is going to have equal rights. And we don't even do that in our own country. So, I mean, I don't mm. know how to ask that, you know, for, for, for the... Uh, you know, the state of Palestine, but yeah, I mean, so many different things, man. Like it, it's embarrassing, you know what I mean? For, for me to have to get up here and be like, well, I don't support Bernie Sanders, you know what I mean? Because he's pro uh, toppling governments in South America. He's, he's, he's pro Israeli apartheid. Like it, I just can't, you know what I mean? And I, I get my friends are like so in, in for it. And you know, I guess that's a moot point now, but, but even if you are, it's Bernie Sanders, for me, it's just our friends are, let's be honest. You can tell he was railroaded out of it. You know what I mean? There was no chance. Yo, man. And it's so funny, man, because I got love for all of these cats, man. I got love for all of these cats. But I remember sitting down with a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who will not be named, who was, like, advocating hard for Bernie Panders. Like, yo, we got to at least give it a shot. And I'm like, all right, look, bro, I'm going to put it to you like this, bro. If he wins, you know, maybe I'll, if he gets the Democratic nominee, I'll strongly consider it. Right, because I'm already knowing it's never gonna happen. Right. But we knew. if he doesn't get the the nomination, vote third party. Do I have Do I have an agreement with you? Because I'm already reading the tea leaves. I've already watched Jeremy Corbyn go up in flames. I'm already knowing that Air Cheeto has got all the dirt on Uncle Joe. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody that's watching the game knows the game is fixed, yo. This is what it's gonna be. There and is, then it comes about, and they all out there shocked. 
Yeah, I mean, there is no white country that has decided to take care of its non-white constituents. You know what I'm saying? And there it is. It doesn't exist. So, so you know what I mean? All I'm saying now is if you were a Bernie fan, or you, you know what I'm saying, you were moving in that space, look how the United States Democratic Party, you know, the the look how they are the ones that were the biggest enemies of Bernie Sanders because these very centralist ideas that we look at as these far left ideas, things like Medicare for all, things that almost every single major, you know what I'm right. saying? Which is still a half measure and does no, is nothing compared to Canadian medicine. Right. It's nothing compared to Cuban medicine, right? And this is still a bridge too fucking far. And we look and we talk about people, our heroes, the neoliberal heroes like Bill Gates. Oh, he predicted, he predict. that's what I've been hearing lately. Oh, he predicted COVID-19. Oh, oh, you mean all the, 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 the leftists, all the, the grassroots activists were talking about medical apartheid? Oh, they didn't predict anything? Yeah, mm. only billionaires, man. Hey, look, this has been an incredible, incredible live. We keeping it going. We just want to give y'all something a little special. I know y'all thought we was out there in the world, but uh, we back we out there in the world. Yeah, that's big facts. Much love to everybody in the chat. I've been seeing so many woke comments in the chat. Please follow us on Matrix Podcast. Uh, follow our podcast, Exit the Matrix, on everywhere podcasts are found. We we post memes on our IG page. We're also on Facebook. I want to give a shout out to everybody who uh, were on the panel. Everybody was in the comments. And of course, our beautiful, incredibly sexy host, uh, Emotion of Moment Sumler. It's a problem, man. I'm curving people left and right as we speak in real time. That's my psionic power, man. Look. Hey, if you ain't caught up on the podcast, get caught up on the podcast. If you caught up on the podcast, there will be more coming soon. Just stay patient, stay woke, stay with us. We love y'all. What? Hey, hey, hey.